This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abram Nanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. MPB Think Radio. This is Creature Comforts. It's a show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. The more you listen to us here on MPB, the more you hear us emphasize Mississippi's rich history. From music and food to events and traditions, we're proud of the state's culture. Today, though, we're going to talk about Mississippi's history from before history was even recorded. George Phillips, the paleontology curator for the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is here to tell us about some new discoveries from prehistoric times. Email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So Dr. Troy Major joining us from his clinic in Jackson, as he does each Thursday. So uh, good morning, Dr. Major. Uh, America's favorite groundhog predicted an early spring this year. So let's uh, talk about what that might mean for our animal friends, especially here in Mississippi. Uh, Early spring might mean an early allergy season. So um, do our pets uh, suffer from allergies uh, much like humans do? Great question. Uh, I don't know if you have any groundhogs in Mississippi or not. I kind of doubt it unless somebody turns something loose. So. It may not apply to us. Anyway, yes, uh, we see a fair amount of allergies right now, in fact. Uh, and in, in dogs especially, and in cats, a lot of it relates to skin issues. In other words, they break out with uh, either a rash or start itching and uh, create some self-utilization-type situations where they uh, create infection and sores. But, yes, we do see a fair amount of allergies this time of the year. A lot of times with our dogs, you'll see a redden sclera conjunctivitis, uh, that sort of thing, especially affecting the eyes. And this wind that we've had lately doesn't help that as well, okay? All right, so some of the things you mentioned then, let's talk about what uh, what might be a clue if, if your pet has uh, or suffering from allergies, just like a se- excessive uh, scratching to where they might even start scratching the fur loose and then and that might get infected. And then you, you mentioned the eyes as well. Any other signs that your pet might have some allergy issues? I know a lot of people complain, and this is a real thing, that uh, our dogs and cats start licking a lot and wakes you up in the middle of the night with these either scratching or licking their feet especially. Uh, So we see a lot of this this time of year. Uh, If you go online, you see all these remedies for licking feet, et cetera, et cetera. Most of those are designed to try to sell you something uh, (laughs) in reality. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that you can do. And just know that it's a true allergy. You would have to uh, do allergy testing, which can be fairly expensive. A lot of times it's easier to control it, uh, realizing that the first step is always to control ectoparasites like fleas and ticks, but also address the problem uh, with your vet uh, concerning uh, excessive grooming, excessive uh, uh, licking, this sort of thing. Now, in a dog or cat, especially, but in a dog, uh, 
if you've got a fairly light colored dog, you can always tell that they are licking their feet uh, simply because it will turn brown. The saliva will actually turn that white or light colored skin brown from excessive licking, even though they may not have any sores to speak of. Well, that's interesting. Would the, the change back to the normal color if, if you're able to control the behavior? Yes, it can. Uh, it's the saliva uh, that does that. And also, if you have a cat especially, uh, and dogs, you'll see the tears. Uh, they can have the same effect. Under the eye, excessive tearing. Uh, you don't notice it so much in a, in a black cat or dog, but certainly you can see it in a light-colored dog. But it'll turn pink under. Classic example is a black poodle. Uh, you might see the stains from tears uh, actually uh, turning red under the eye. Um, so what about uh, pollen? Now, that seems to be a uh, thing that really bothers us humans a lot. Is that is that a source uh, for um, allergies in our pets? Right. And we have to remember that when our dog, our cat, but especially our dogs outside, they may get covered with pollen, uh, almost change their coat color on, on a black dog, might turn yellow uh, almost from all the pollen. And certainly that can uh, cause issues. Generally, though, we see more of the skin issues than we do the respiratory type thing we see in people where sneezing, uh, coughing, etc. And dogs and cats certainly can do that. But a lot of times it's caused by something other than an allergy. And, you know, you're right. Sometimes uh, when, when it's real bad pollen, you can see it, you know, on your cars and everywhere. So if, if, you're, if your dog gets uh, pollenized, I guess I'll make up a word there, just like a, maybe a bath to get it off their fur? Absolutely. And one of the best things over the years I've read uh, is to actually, uh, if you're concerned about this, is when your dog comes in or from outside, uh, you can actually take distilled water or bottled water and wipe the feet and just uh, wipe the coat down as well. But a lot of times if you are diligent in removing pollen and other allergens from the feet using distilled water, a lot of times that will help. Now, Dr. Major... A lot of people are not, lot of people are not going to do that every time the dog goes out either. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's a, that is a chore itself. Um, now, when you're talking about all these allergies and stuff, uh, it brought up to my mind when we first got my newest puppy in the summer uh, of last year, she had a bad rash on her stomach, um, which is the only place we could have seen it because uh, she's pretty she's pretty hairy. So uh, she had a bad rash on her stomach. Now, could that have been um, allergies from then? Because it went away when it got into the fall or so. Could that have been summer allergies or something like that? How old was she at that time? Uh, she would have been six or eight weeks. You know, a lot of this is, I would say, it's a juvenile thing. We see a lot of little rashes or pimples, especially in the groin and abdomen area. Uh, if it's severe or you have pustules, I certainly would recommend some antibiotic at that point. And, yes, it could be an allergy. But a lot of times it's just something that has to do more with the immune system, in my opinion, as the puppy is growing, and a lot of times they will outgrow that particular thing. But because they lick, uh, it's quite easy to spread, for example, a staph, a skin staph infection 
from place to place. So uh, a good bath and um, antibiotic if, in fact, it gets that severe. Okay, so you're thinking just it was just the puppy syndrome type thing, and then I, I, I shouldn't be – or I should still watch out for it this summer just in case, but not but as alarmed for it. Right. She hasn't done it since, has she? No, sir. Okay. I think maybe she's outgrown that. I hope that's the correct answer. Perfect. Thank you very much. Welcome. All right. uh, So, Dr. Major, what uh, I guess this is a lot of ask this question a lot, but it's like, you know, you know, your pet's behavior. And if you see excessive itching or whatever for several days, might be that the time to just take it into the vet and and try to check out, see what's going on? Certainly the first thing I would do, if you see something, all of a sudden they're itching, scratching, and you look for fleas, that would be the first thing. After that, uh, you can look and see. Uh, our animals do respond somewhat to antihistamines, but not always. And if you're just looking and everything gets, continues to get worse, that's the problem. Take the dog, into, or dog or cat into your vet and uh, have it checked out. The other thing I would say, too, and this is just kind of a guess, but, I mean, especially if you see that they've been scratching so much to where there's some redness or it looks like it might be something that might possibly get infected, there's not really a way to discourage that because they're itching and that's what they need to do. So that's one of those where you actually probably should go ahead and bring it into the vet and so that, that you can do some treatment from that point. Right. And a lot of times you'll see hair loss. Uh, skin will be excoriated or scratched. And certainly these are things that would require uh, some attention and taking into your vet. Always a popular topic when George joins us on Creature Comforts. And, in fact, we've got a question already. So let's go to the phone lines first and say good morning to April. April, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Good morning. I was going to ask, um, we have a lot of fossils here in in our local area as far as Mississippi. But um, every now and then I can pick up pieces of jasper. But what other gems do we have laying around? Oh, that's a good question. We only have one precious one, and it's limited to primarily southwest Mississippi. Uh, We've got precious opal, but we've got a lot of um, semi-precious stones in our native gravels. And I say our native gravels. These gravels are actually from exotic places brought here by rivers, namely the ancient Mississippi River. But in those same deposits, um, great accumulations of which uh, date to the last ice age in western Mississippi, you might find in addition to jasper, you'll find agates. Have you seen agates, April? I've seen a few, but not that many. I live uh, down towards south Mississippi. Okay. Um, South of 84? Yeah. Oh, okay. So the further south you go, the less... And the further away from the Mississippi River you go, the less impressive those gravels are. But there, there are some uh, little bitty gems in there, as it were, uh, that include a variety of quartz stones. Um, they just the gravels just get smaller, in generally speaking, down that way. The ones with which I'm familiar. But if you live close to the river, you can get any type of rock that tumbled down the Mississippi River and. During the Ice Age, uh, and that includes types of lava rock, um, various types of chert and quartz. Uh, There's some pretty purple quartzite uh, that's in the Mississippi River and in the Ice Age deposits near it. Um, 
you, it, it's, it's lo- always location, location, location. <laughs> so you may have to go a little westward and a little northward for the bigger stuff and perhaps the greater variety. Well, I was curious about, is that a shale uh, in between Jackson and Meridian on, that you see along the uh, road? A sh- oh, oh! I know what you're talking about. Yeah, she, she's she's referring to not a S H E L L, but S H A L E, which is a type of sedimentary rock. Yes, it is a uh, silty, uh, shaley rock called the uh, Basic City member of the Tallahatta Formation, and it's gotten covered over over the years with vegetation, but it's kind of impressive. And therein, you can find. I don't suggest you to go looking because it's along the interstate. But um, you, you can see uh, uh, trace fossils and their occasional plant fossils in that. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You bet, April. So, George, if you would, uh, you know, we've been on the show a lot, a frequent guest, but remind us how you got interested in, in fossils and this sort of thing. Oh, it goes back to the childhood when I was just too curious that I'd get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Perhaps um, more likely uh, it can be traced to a couple of cigar boxes that my dad had uh, that he would put trinkets in that he would find on his excursions. We grew up on a farm, my brother and my sisters and I, and all of us would find things on the farm. But before I was even finding things, we used to go through my dad's old cigar boxes to see what he'd been finding. And that was certainly a source of inspiration. Some of the objects were as simple as colored glass. I remember a particularly pretty yellow piece. Disappointed later to find out that it was plastic. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, he had all kinds of trinkets. He picked up places. And then he showed us how to look for things on the ground and in streams. And later, uh, one of the farmhands took me under his wing. And that's he's he really inspired me and his name is Charles James and he's still with us and he still lives uh, near the Ben Oak community in northeast Mississippi but yeah I kind of owe a lot of it and I and I uh, credit him in my master thesis from years ago <laughs> uh, before we get into things that's interesting so what would be you know because April just uh, had her, her phone call as well are there some tips that you could give to people who want to go out and explore looking looking for things yeah, I'd say hook up with a buddy. Um, go to uh, rock uh, shows, powwows, things like that. Uh, that's certainly the best advice before social media, but now there's a lot of groups on social media you can connect with. I still say, though, you need to collect locally. And, and you know, frankly, though, that's how people meet local people is social, <laughs> social media these days. So however you do it, but I encourage it in person. Uh, to seek out people, and that's what I did. Um, beyond Charles helping me out, I went to see programs given at the Cobb Institute uh, of Archaeology and the Columbus Public Library, where I would uh, encounter people that professionals that would know things. And I eventually um, met a uh, the late Jack K, Dr. John M. K. of Columbus, Mississippi, and he was sort of my geology mentor. But, uh, yeah, that's the way to connect is social media these days. Seek out the professional groups, although sometimes the people advising other people on social media are completely ignorant themselves, <laughs> but, but love to comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've got to remember this is the Internet, so sometimes yeah. take things with a grain of salt. 
Yes. So we mentioned you're the paleontology curator at the museum. Tell us uh, uh, you know, about some of the things you do in that role. As the curator, which is just nothing but a, a glorified caretaker, <laughs> um, I am in charge of the state fossil collection. So there are other curators there at the museum. There's the ichthyologist, the curator of fishes, who's in charge of the modern fishes. Uh, and so you have these different curators in charge of, of the different living collections. And I say living. They were living recently. Right now they're pickled in jars or their skins are spread out in drawers. Uh, nevertheless, I'm in charge of all those things as long as they are at least a thousand years old, we'll say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm in charge of the state fossil collection. I conduct research on the fossils. But just as equally as important, I make the state fossil collection available to people, professionals, largely all over the world, for them to publish, do research and publish on Mississippi topics. And I have a lot of researchers that I correspond with. In fact, at any moment's notice, I am way behind on the paperwork. Right now, we have over 115 or 120 <clears throat> lots out on loan to people, mostly in North America, professionals, and to museums. We have things out on display at various, various places. Like we've got displays at the Union County Heritage Museum in uh, New Albany, Mississippi. And um, so, yeah, uh, I stay pretty busy. It's um, the position, the paleontology program only employs one person. I try to do the work of at least four or five people. Uh, my wife and I don't have kids, so I'm able to do that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's never a dull moment, Kevin, never a dull moment. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to talk about some uh, discoveries. Let's start uh, the one in 2013 in Prentice County. Tell us about that. Well, as, uh, as it would have it, uh, there were two big discoveries in 2013, and that's the um, other one I was discussing earlier. Uh, and so we did presentations at the Academy of Sciences that same year because it was just so much information and we were anxious to talk about it. So we introduced these research topics at, at the Academy, uh, myself and the discoverers. Uh, and we are just having reached a point some 12 years later, 13 years later, we're finally publishing on it. Uh, it took uh, numerous people for the uh, Wayne County project. But for the Prentice County dinosaur discovery, uh, we have finally recruited uh, a couple of people that are going to help. And the lead on the project is a, a master's student, Derek Hoffman. It's his master's thesis project at University of Southern Mississippi under the direction of Dr. Allison Brink. But this was a big discovery um, made known to us by uh, Dave Haynes, uh, formerly of the North Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society, and now a member of some other club in the coastal plain of South Carolina. And uh, Dave brought the discovery to me. Um, it had been found by the landowner and the sheriff of Prentice County. And incidentally, um, he, the sheriff finally deputized me, Kevin. <laughs> Just the last trip to Boonville, he find there's the, I see the badge yep. everybody can see. I was finally deputized, I suppose, for it's that <clears throat> has to do with this contribution to Boonville paleontology. Anyway, but all the kids got deputized that day. They all got little badges. Uh, but we had the USM group out there a couple of weeks ago looking at the site. And uh, we believe we've rescued most of the bones back uh, in 2013, 2016. But the site continues to be monitored, and the landowner, 
does not want to cover it back up to do the to uh, reclaim it until we're sure we got all the critter out of the ground. It was exposed by the digging of uh, a pond, which required fill for a levee. And so when the landowner took the top of the hill off, uh, he exposed the dinosaur. However, we believe that the parts of the dinosaur are now in the pond levee, (laughs) unrescuable. But nevertheless, um, it constitutes the most complete dinosaur ever found in Mississippi, somewhere between 15 to 18% uh, possibly even a little bit more. But from that, you're able to surmise what the creature looked like back in the day? We are. We have just, although we didn't have any skull material, so as a stand-in today, I brought a lower jaw of one of these creatures called duck-billed dinosaurs. We recovered no skull material, of the adult anyway. We had the remains of two, very fragmentary remains of two individuals. And it looks like we have uh, a headless um, adult Plus, um, the discoverer of the site, or the person who brought it to my attention, Dave, Dave found the jawbone of a nestling dinosaur. Uh, it has no teeth. The fossils are not very well preserved. We, there are no teeth preserved, and a lot of the bones are cracked and crazing, and uh, they're, uh, they're filled with uh, decomposing iron pyrite, so it's required a lot of stabilization and preservation to keep the material from decomposing any further um but it's it's an amazing little discovery we're, we're really excited about it we still haven't found a dinosaur expert to help us out we're poking at this guy who worked on the alabama duckbill dinosaur a number of years ago uh albert and we're hoping that albert will if we bug him enough that he'll help us out with this one <laughs> So, George, you brought in, I guess, as you said, it's a recreation, but it's, you said it's part of the jawbone. Is that right? It is. Uh, we acquired this from the Black Hills Institute in Hill City, South Dakota. They make really <coughs> authentic-looking um, dinosaur bones, you, uh, casting, molding them and casting them in a very durable resin. And it looks very lifelike. Even the density is, of the bone is very similar but here we have the teeth that are arranged in a stacked pattern uh, with little ridges on each individual tooth and a cutting edge at the top. And in these dinosaurs, similar to modern horses and cows, whose tooth continues to erupt throughout the life of the animal, these teeth continue to erupt, and there's numerous um, individual teeth throughout the jaw, much more so than you would see in a cow and a horse. But... Um, this, this strategy is very similar in that they needed these continually erupting teeth to chew on very abrasive uh, foods, very abrasive plants. And this one also needed a cutting edge for whatever types of tough things that he was, chew- he was chewing on and cutting. Uh, but at the front, they had no teeth. Uh, one of the reasons they call them at the duckbill dinosaurs, they have kind of flat terminations to their jaws that per- that held a uh, bird-like or bird-bill-like tomium, uh, sort of keratinous, um, shovel-like thing that fitted over the end of the jaw. And that's what they nipped and nibbled and tore with as they were feeding. And that's about the size of your arm, so it gives us an idea of sort of the the size of these creatures. Right. These are some big jokers. This one is an adult myasaura or mother dinosaur from um, uh, Montana. Uh, but there are duckbills that got even bigger than this, uh, upwards of, or in excess of 30 feet long. This particular guy was probably somewhere around 18 to 20 feet long. 
Uh, but yeah, Duckbill's got pretty big. Our individual from Boonville was probably not in excess of uh, 15 to 18 feet long, from the tip of the tail to the tip of the duckbill. <laughs> Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out, but we do have a guest in studio of this hour. It's George Phillips, also from the Museum of Natural Science, where he is the paleontology curator. We've got a pet question on the line, but first, uh, George, you wanted to mention an event coming up uh, for younger kids. Tell us about that. Well, Libby and my wife would never f- forgive me for not mentioning <laughs> this, so we've got a birding camp for 9- to 12-year-olds. It's coming up the 11th through the 15th, and everybody's so excited about it. Uh, the Mississippi Audubon Society is uh, holding the birding camp at the museum. It will involve museum staff as well. But it's a partnership between the Audubon Society and the Museum of Natural Science. And there's been a lot of buzz about it. You need to call in now or register online. You just have to go to the website or call to find out the details on how to get your 9- to 12-year-old signed up. But it's it's a fantastic uh, camp. Uh, that's spring break, 11th through the 15th. Each individual gets a pair of binoculars. They get a Sibley's Guide mm-hmm. to Birds of Eastern North America. And they get uh, a, uh, what was it? Oh, a birdhouse kit. Wow. Uh, and so uh, you walk away with a lot, not just the knowledge of how to identify birds, but all this extra bling, bird bling, <laughs> as it were. Uh, but, you know, it's not limited to the expert birder. Uh, this is open from the novices. If you don't even know anything about a bird, if you call a cardinal a red bird, come on in. It doesn't matter. Come learn about birds, the 11th through the 15th. All right. <clears throat> as I mentioned, we've got a pet question on the line for Dr. Troy Major, and it comes from Roger. Roger, you're on the air with us now, so go ahead. Yes, sir. I have a... Uh German Shepherds, they have two of them. Uh, one of them I don't have a problem with, but the male, he loses his hair on his right side back towards his hip. That's the only place, and he scratches pretty good. But I can take Dawn liquid and put on that spot, lather it up pretty good, and leave it. And his hair will regrow and everything. like I mean, pretty coat and all. Then a few months later, it'll do the same thing all over again. It's always on the same side. Is that correct? Yes, always on the same side. Right. It's a little strange. Certainly you would think that there might be some sort of pain going on uh, causing him to do that. Does he chew it a lot when he when he's losing the hair? Sir? Does he, does he scratch and chew at it? In other yes, words, sir, he does. He, I was thinking yeah. please at one time, but, you know, right. I, I give him the teeth, you know, Right, if you keep those under control, it is strange to have that one side, and uh, there's got to be a reason for it. Obviously, uh, most of the time we see a bilateral hair loss, uh, but I would say that, uh, how old is this dog? Uh, how old? Probably about four. Okay, so he's still a young dog. I. I would have to say, if there's no history of an injury or anything like that, uh, I'd say that you've got the method down as far as getting it under control when this happens. I would do it quick, you know, early, early signs when he starts doing it. Uh, but that is strange, just the one place. Uh, have you talked to your veterinarian about it? 
no, sir, because I was thinking it was more or less fleas, you know, because I would do the dawn and go away. I think well, maybe he's got a real bad fleas. But it's kind of weird. He only does it in that one spot. And after I've done the pill a few times and everything, I told my wife, I said, maybe just every time we watch him, we just use dawn liquid and, and, and do that. Well, all I can say is whatever works, that's fine. I'm glad that does work. Uh, if this persists, though, or if it spreads, I would say a veterinarian about it just to get a better idea, hands-on, and to look and see, okay? Yeah, he's had this probably, he may be a little bit over before, but he's had this, I know, for two, two and a half years. Right, and right. it's had the same thing. He'll he'll itch it, uh, itch it until it. I mean, scratch it and all till there's almost no hair. I can do this uh, uh, process and hair will grow back real pretty and fine. And he's good. Stop itching and all. Well, I congratulate you on finding finding a method to control it. But I'm not sure that I can tell you why he's doing that. So anyway, good luck with it. And if it gets worse or spreads, I uh, definitely need to see a veterinarian. Listen, thanks, right, for your, right. thanks for your question. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, George, I'm curious, is sort of maybe like a timeline. How do things go? So in this case, uh, you said the homeowner or the landowner that was was uh, doing some ex- and, uh, excavation and, 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 and exposed this area. So what what do you do? I mean, how do, we, how do you go about finding the bones and making sure that you do have everything out of a site like that? We're letting it uh, naturally erode after several years' absence. It's probably lost, um, you know, probably a foot to a foot and a half of the shale, S-H-A-L-E, um, that it's entombed in. Uh, so the natural erosion helps, but we also dig in the deposit. Um, but it's, it's the uh, skeleton is scattered over such a large area, a relatively large area, that you just it's hard to go probing around everywhere to see if it is, there's anything there. And it seems like most of the weathering of the bone uh, took place a long time ago uh, before it was exposed. Um, and the bone, it's, it's pretty stable once it's exposed. Uh, most of the damage was done, and that's a complicated science about how things uh, weather and how they erode. It's hard to explain that. It's a whole field called taphonomy. Anyway, um, the uh, bone is uh, um, in a, f- a few places. The bone was really badly preserved, but in some places, it was wonderfully preserved. Um, just not as good as we as bone we find in other places. Um, on this last excavation, we only found a bone fragment that seems to have belonged to something that we excavated on a previous occasion. Um, the very first bone that was found in the site was when they were putting a fence post in the ground. And that's where we were digging this time because it's a high portion of the site. So we're digging a fence and the post going in, and it just happened to encounter the main concentration of the bones. <laughs> and so a few things were damaged. It was no big deal. But um, that spot still continues to, to yield bones. And let me state, though, that there are bones of other things that are at this site. Uh, what we've collected thus far represents a diversity of animals, um, marine invertebrates to um, marine vertebrates, like uh, there's crocodilian remains. There's several different types of sea turtles. We made an important sea turtle discovery there. It's just a couple of elements, but it represents the first occurrence of this, first report of this turtle from Mississippi. 
So the site holds a wealth of information that will not just be Derek's thesis project, but other projects as well. Um, but it took me 10 years to finally get on it. There's so much to do around Mississippi. Mississippi is so fossil rich. But nevertheless, we're on top of it, and uh, it, it's, it's been a fun ride with it and a lot more fun to go with discoveries at the locality. So you had men- <clears throat> mentioned that uh, some of the bones were better preserved than others. Would you or could you or and would you then do anything once the you've discovered the bone to to stabilize it? Right. So we've done some gluing here and there. Uh, it it doesn't look pretty. It's very unattractive as a <laughs> fossil goes, and it's it can be difficult to clean. It can be difficult to um, distinguish the sediment from the bone in places. Um, we had a similar site in Tennessee, or there is a similar site in Tennessee that uh, is slightly younger that has the same situation as the nature of the clay or the shale. Um, so we, we take it real slow, but once the bones are coated in a varnish-like substance that's made of powdered vinyl, they look a lot prettier, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> and But we're going to, uh, as long as they don't fall apart too bad, we're going to do that showy coating towards the end, and we hope to have them on display in Boonville after the thesis project, or several of the specimens after the thesis project is completed and the study of the bones is completed. Um, <clears throat> you, I think you had mentioned earlier sort of working with other uh, p- people from other areas, other states, that sort of thing, um, and you are currently working on a partnership in Texas? Yes, uh, with a guy whose family is from Mississippi. He's not from Mississippi, but he loves Mississippi. He was born out of state. Sadly, he can't be called a Mississippian or at least a native Mississippi. But anyway, he returns to see his family a lot in Mississippi. They live in Carrollton. His name is uh, Noah O'Bright, and he's one of the um, principal employees of uh, Paleotex. And uh, Paleotex has been great with us. We share information. They're working on preparation of some of our fossils. Uh, I had Noah over. Noah was anxious to learn more about a mastodon that was discovered in Mississippi back in the early 1970s. And um, no one had ever actually visited the site to memory where the the specimen was found. Everybody who was involved in the excavation largely seems to have passed. Only the landowner knew the original location of the the mastodon discovery. So we got to see the lost mastodon site that's uh, between Carrollton and uh, uh, Greenwood. And the specimen is on display at the Mississippi Museum of the Mississippi Delta in Greenwood, Mississippi. And it's, it's a fascinating specimen. Um, it's not real complete, but there's a lot of individuals there. And it was found in Ice Age Lurse uh, there in that area that's exposed in the Lurse Hills. And uh, we've got lots of old pictures from the early 70s showing the excavation. And Noah and I were so grateful to the landowners who helped us find the lost Mastodon site. So now there's people other than the landowners that know where it was. We took lots of pictures, and you could still see the excavation site. So we were talking about Carroll County just a few minutes ago, and Walker from Carroll County has called in to join the conversation. Walker, what do you have for us this morning? I have misheard, but I have seen the uh, the bones in the Greenwood Museum of the Delta, uh, and uh, uh did I miss here, or is the excavation site still open and available for viewing? 
not really. Uh, it's it's on private land. Um, it's all overgrown. Um, but the uh, landowners were digging a road from the top of the Lurse Bluffs down into the floodplain, and that's when they encountered the bones in the excavation of the road. That would have been, I forget now, the 20s, 30s, or 40s. Maybe it was the 30s. Okay, well, I was born in 47. I've done some anthropology and archaeology, so a site like that would be interesting. But I can understand it would not be available because it's private and no doubt way overgrown. Anyway, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the show. All right, Walker, thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with George Phillips from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He's the paleontology curator. So we got a couple of minutes left. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, the fossil discovery in Wayne County? Oh, boy. Uh, the uh, Wayne County discovery was also made the same year, 2013, as the, uh, the, Boone, the Boonville discovery. And it involves a great diversity of early Oligocene, 28-million-year-old mammals and other vertebrates, including reptiles. Um, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. The, the paper just on the mammals, I understand, is some 100 pages long. Uh, that project is being led by Dr. Barry Albright at the University of North Florida, very competent. He did a lot of work on deposits of the same age in eastern Texas near the Louisiana border. Uh, but Barry has identified uh, a couple of dozen different species of mammals, including marine mammals, a type of dugong. And uh, the types of creatures, though, to give you – so this is 28 million years ago. To give you an idea of how different not just the landscape but the species uh, composition was, this is – envision this. Look at your modern landscapes and your modern uh, animals that you might encounter in the woods or on the seashore – a white-tailed deer. This is tw- 26 million years before white-tailed deer <laughs> were in North America, okay? So white-tailed deer, uh, deer in general, are relatively new immigrants, geologically speaking, to North America. Um, at this time, there was a creature called an anthracothere that would have had similar uh, deer and hog uh, feeding strategies. Uh, imagine a hippo crossed with a hog crossed with a deer. <laughs> and you get an anthracothere. Um, they're uh, fascinating creatures. They were very common all around the globe about this time, particularly in northern latitudes. The other creatures are little antelope-like things called protoceratids. Uh, there were... Um, uh, little deer-type animals, the hypertragulids. One of them is still living today. It's called the musk deer, but they're not related to the deer as we know them. It's they're they're in a different family altogether. But yeah, so we had the hypertragulids, the protoceratids, the anthracotheres, just nothing familiar whatsoever, Kevin. <laughs> but an exotic landscape nonetheless. That was a long time ago. That's, yeah, that's, you know that's when you come on that always boggles my mind is. What was it, 27 million years ago? I mean, that's yeah hard to fathom. It is. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, there was more. Mississippi was partly underwater back in that time. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So the water was lapping up um, just south, well, around Waynesboro. These, these are uh, marginal marine facies that are yielding the bones. So the water was right at the, the latitude of Waynesboro. <laughs> 
the shoreline curved northward as you approached, um, uh, as you went west in Mississippi towards the river, the, the shoreline was a little bit further northward. Um, but yeah, all kinds of creatures. And if you were to go back in time to see such a thing, uh, you know, would, you wouldn't recognize anything. Everything would just be so bizarre. So uh, are there more aquatic finds then because of that? Then There are, yeah. So Mississippi's fossil record is dominated by marine sediments. And many marine sediments preserve fossils relatively well, or at least preserve some form of fossils. They don't preserve everything. There's a lot of um, chemical or mineralogical selectivity to the preservation of certain creatures over others. For example, soft-bodied creatures uh, are less preserved. Certain shells don't. In fact, most seashells do not preserve in the fossil record. You may get a few. You may get oysters. You may get scallops. Those preserve reasonably well. Uh, if there's any preservation at all, but a lot of shells don't preserve. So when you find any fossils at all in, in many of these places, like we do at Waynesboro, just imagine what that fossil bed really, that bone and shell bed really was like. It's only preserved. And this thing was thick with fossils, yet it didn't preserve all of them. <laughs> so this was like a, a, you know, just mounds and mounds of decaying and decayed organisms but, yeah, it's special circumstances like that that you get such high diversity. And this environment, uh, we've got all kinds of mollusks. Um, we've got snakes. And this is before the common um, snakes that we see today, the, uh, the family, the colubridae. Most snakes are either viperids or colubrids in the landscape today. This is before those. This is when we had buid snakes, like the boa. So... Boid snakes were a prime component of the snake communities in Mississippi long before the colubrids, like the rat snake, speckled king, etc. So, yeah, unfamiliar landscape to us uh, 21st centuryers. <laughs> um, so I know that uh, one of the big events each year at the museum is the Fossil Roadshow. Will we have one for 2024? Oh, boy, it's right around the corner. <laughs> Two days and we're here and we're busily trying to prepare for it. Uh, it's going to be a big show, as usual. We've invited a lot of people this year. Uh, we're going to have some new tables out there, but correct. Saturday, March 2nd, from nine, from 10 to 3, um, the Fossil Road Show goes on. Of course, the museum's open from 9 to 5. But from 10 to 3, the show is on, and we'll have people from all over the state and surrounding states. We'll have several groups from Alabama. Not sure if our Missouri group is returning this year. We'll have a panel of fossil experts. And so many people have reached out on social media to say that they're coming to get their bones and other fossils and rocks identified. Yeah, so you, they do that. But also, it's a, if, it's, if someone's just starting out, as we mentioned before, this would be a great resource to go network and find some other people interested in the same sort of thing. Oh, it would be. If you've never picked up a fossil and want to see what they look like and what to look for, what to look for, where to go. Um, just come to the show. It's a starting point. And that's Saturday, March 2nd. Saturday, March 2nd. Uh, all hands on deck that morning. Every fossil expert in the state. All right. <laughs> That'll wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. To hear today's show or previous show, you can search for Creature Comforts on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Our show is produced and engineered by Abram Nanny. And so for Dr. Troy Major and our guest, George Phillips, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with Coach Charlie Melton. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.